This is Coast to Coast. I'm Carol Masser. We are here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance and the most interesting stories in global technology from Silicon Valley and beyond, powered by our more than 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Coast to Coast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. It's the last fair going down. All right, so trade deals, that's what's being talked about big time. President Trump meeting with European Commission President Jean-Claude Juncker, Juncker, excuse me, and the EU trade representative today at the White House. Those meetings just wrapping up. Trump, of course, threatening import taxes on European cars and on concerns also of escalating trade tensions between the two allies. That's your backdrop. Let's get the latest on this. Matthew Phillips, policy and politics editor of Bloomberg Businessweek. Uh, Matthew with us from our bureau in Washington, D.C. What did anything change out of that meeting? Are things better? Are things worse? <laughs> <laughs> I don't. I don't know. Uh, we'll see what where we are in a, in a couple hours. I mean, the optics were as they usually are. People were smiling. Trump had nice things to say. He called him smart, tough man. He said he was very hopeful for something uh, uh, to the positive to come of this. Younger, for his part, uh, had a very simple message: We are friends, not enemies. We should focus on reducing tariffs, not increasing them. Those are some obvious things you would think, but given Given uh, the president's rhetoric recently calling uh, EU foes uh, and uh, the escalation of tariffs that we've seen, those are simply not givens anymore. And so Juncker comes to town not only hoping to kind of um, push back, it's almost like this last-ditch effort to uh, keep the president from uh, putting this 25% tariff on car imports, but basically to just like pre- prevent this escalation, to lower the boil, to smooth things over. The backdrop is ominous, uh, and we'll see if anything concrete comes out of this, but I don't think expectations are very high. Larry Kudlow, the president's economic uh, advisor, said as much this morning. He said it was a very important, crucial meeting, but that expectations are pretty low. And Matthew, you know, you mentioned this it, as you were describing this, you know, talk of friend and foes and enemies and and all of that. It, it bears some context here that this is not normally how people talk in these situations. Right. Help us well, understand this. And these are the Europeans. You know, these are among the closest allies that the U.S. has. But you have to remember that the way the president views relationships in the geopolitical sense is through trade, and even more specifically than that, through trade deficits or surpluses. And the U.S. has a $150 billion deficit with the EU. The way the president views that is that we are losing, that the U.S. is losing, that that is bad for us without taking really into consideration the fact the U.S. is the wealthiest country on the planet, that uh, we have a strong currency, uh, n- none of those things. So he simply views that through the lens of deficits and surpluses, and he thinks that by ratcheting up these tariffs, he's going to bring people like uh, uh, Juncker or the Chinese or the Mexicans or the Canadians to the table, and uh, that they'll make some concessions, and that you know, in four or five years, uh, because it seems like he's playing a long game, uh, he'll have a better situation. Matthew, I know it's never a question like this is never an easy answer, yes or no. But I mean, is he right to some regards that maybe some of these trade agreements, whether it's with the Chinese or others, maybe aren't in the best interests of the United States and deserve having a second look? 
I think it's fair to say that by and large, when U.S. goods go overseas, they tend to face higher barriers than uh, when foreign goods come to the U.S. We are the biggest market in the world. Um, you know, whether he can fundamentally change that, I mean, this whole idea that NAFTA has been terrible for, for, for America is central to his uh, plan here. And yet you see pockets all over the country where, whether it's in the ag belt, um, that that's been good for them, right? And so one of the um, results of this, uh, especially in the manufacturing sector, has been to kind of push U.S. Uh, producers, U.S. manufacturers up the value chain. And we don't make the raw stuff anymore, like aluminum, like steel, but we make all these higher value, higher margin, more profitable products out of them that can be then exported. So it's in a way to redo this is to is to go back in time in a way and to uh, discount, you know, the amount of development that China has had right. over the past 30 years. And it's just, it's very difficult to see how you throw that whole machine into reverse. I just want to mention uh, a headline that crossed the Bloomberg just uh, at the top of the hour, and this has uh, senators introducing a bipartisan bill to delay those auto tariffs. I mean, can Congress stop what the president wants to do when it comes to trade? That is a super crucial question because what he and Commerce Secretary Wilbur Ross have going right now on the auto sector is this thing called the 232 investigation that allows the president to uh, levy tariffs in the name of national security. That's what they did this spring with steel and aluminum, and there was nothing that Congress could do about it. Uh, They are trying to kind of – there are fits and starts of efforts inside Congress and inside the Republican Party to pull some of that trade authority back from the executive and put it back into uh, the legislature. But, uh, you know, specifically whether they're, they're going to be able to keep um, the White House from finding that these um, that, that, that foreign autos are a threat to national security, uh, I don't think that, that, that there's a clear mechanism for that because they weren't able to do that on steel and aluminum. Maybe they, maybe they were a little slow to kind of realize what was going on when that was happening in, in uh, February and March because uh, they, they were not part of that process. Hmm. So, Matthew, only about 30 seconds left here, but I've got to ask you about another element of this. You mentioned it in passing, which is the, the farm angle. Trade not aid is the headline in the Bloomberg. U.S. farmers give Trump plan a cool reception. That is the heartland. That is Trump country. How is that playing through? Well, the true test and the true answer to that question lies in November, right? So far, it seems that uh, people are saying, well, we're going we're gonna to wait it, it, wait it out and see, and we're going to give the president the, the, the benefit of the doubt. These are proud farmers uh, who don't want a handout. Um, the fact that we are paying money for a, pro, for a self-inflicted kind of wound already strikes a lot of people, you know, core to the Republican Party as right. at odds with basic um, you know, party, party establishment. We got to run. Matthew Phillips, thank you so much. Policy and politics editor at Bloomberg Businessweek joining us from our bureau in the nation's capital. This is Bloomberg. Tell it like it is. Uh, yes. I'm nothing to Tell it like it is when it comes to uh, Russian meddling. 
uh, when it comes to uh, U.S. elections and more. President Trump tweeting yesterday claiming that Russia will be pushing very hard for Democrats in the 2018 midterm elections. We've heard a lot about this, and we've had U.S. intelligence agencies uh, confirm that there was Russian meddling. Let's get into this uh, with Paul Barrett, Deputy Director of the Center for Business and Human Rights at NYU Stern School of Business, very familiar to our audience, former senior writer at Bloomberg Business Week, back with us in uh, Bloomberg headquarters and our Bloomberg 1130 studio. Nice to have you here with us. Great. Thanks, Carol. Good to uh, be here. Reading um, some of this report, I mean, democracy, let, let's just put it out there. Democracy is under attack by the Kremlin. It is, not only in this country, but all across uh, Europe. This is really a global phenomenon, and it's part of uh, Putin's larger strategy to try to uh, destabilize democracy to the advantage of Russia. And Paul, you know, you've looked obviously deeply into this. Clearly, social media played a massive role. That is not news. What did you find, if anything, that surprised you about the technology element here? Well, I mean, what's important, I think, to underscore is that the technology supporting Russian disinformation is evolving, that likely later this year, uh, when and if uh, Russia inter- tries to interfere with our midterm elections, they'll be using different means, that, that what was done last year will not continue. And one of, the th- one of the things that I think the social media companies need to prepare for is uh, researching the type of artificial intelligence that will be able to pick out things like so-called deep fakes, which is the technology that allows someone to fabricate audio or video such that someone who is uninitiated in this technology would actually think that a speech being given, you know, took place when in fact it was just it was just fabricated or uh, video and audio of a, of a war scene could be could be fabricated. And uh, this is going to be inundating uh, you know, social media soon. Paul, we, we've often talked, Jason and I, and certainly at Business Week, about kind of the hacking uh, and things that go on on, on the web mm-hmm. and on the internet, um, that it's kind of like a whack-a-mole, <laughs> that as soon as you figure out one strategy, they've got a new strategy, like you're just talking about. Can we keep up with it? Can Facebook, Google, Twitter, do they have the means, the technology, the people to actually keep on top of it? They, they almost certainly have the technical capacity. What they need is the will in the organization. And one of the recommendations we make in our report is that the social media companies and Google, for that matter, Matter, uh, set up internal teams that specialize in Russian disinformation. So people who would know and would be publicly identified as the people who are keeping track of what the, the Russians are up to. Um, and certainly there will be other threats beyond Russia. So it's not like we will be focusing on Russia for all time. But for right now, Russia is the most potent threat. And Paul, I have to ask you, because so, one of the most fascinating things about your report is this notion that you know we talk so much about what happened here in the United States. This is a global phenomenon. The Kremlin has has its sights set far beyond the United States. How did that manifest itself in different places? Well, uh, Putin uh, realized that uh, disinformation and cyber attacks would be uh, a, a cheaper form of something that was historically known as active measures, which is, goes back to the Cold War era and had to do with the shaping of opinion to favor then the Soviet Union. And he began experimenting with this in places like Estonia and Georgia in 2007, 2008, then even more dramatically in Ukraine in 2014. And then it, he, it began radiating west all across Europe and really arrived on our shores in 2016. And I think that's the way to conceptualize this, that this is a much larger campaign, as you say, uh, to boost Russia's influence and to recover some of what was lost when the Soviet Union fell apart. And maybe a much bigger problem, because you say one of the more, uh, I guess, ambitious recommendations is that these internet platforms kind of rethink their advertising model. I mean, this is how these guys make their money. It, it, It is a problem, but the same things that make 
uh, disinformation in the form of uh, phony Facebook pages that that generate yeah. uh, social controversy. The, the same thing that makes those effective make advertising in general effective uh, on on uh, the internet. Uh, the same type of negative emotions, uh, fear, uh, anger, and, and so forth. Um, so this is something I think that they, they will need to continue to rethink. I mean, I just think about the transparency issues. Like, know who you're selling something yeah. to, right? I mean, ask the questions and figure it out. It's not so difficult. Only about 30 seconds left here, Paul. What happens next? Well, what's next is uh, the big question that the federal government faces and the president faces. What will we do when we have these problems in the fall of 2018? And if Trump tries to obfuscate all of this, we'll be in big trouble. If other people and individuals step forward and, and, and identify this stuff, uh, we'll, be, we'll be better off. Paul Barrett, Deputy Director of the Center for Business and Human Rights at NYU Stern School of Business, also our former colleague here at Bloomberg Business Week. Great to be with you. Thanks for coming in. So we've heard so, so much about trade and tariffs, and we're finally starting to see some impact and some commentary as we get into earnings season. Helping us make sense of it all is Brett Ewing. He is the chief market strategist at First Franklin Financial Services. He joins us on the phone from Tallahassee, Florida. Hey, Brett, how's it going? Hey, Jason. It's going well. Thanks for having me on. So help us understand this. Obviously, headlines coming out of Washington today as President Trump uh, meets with Juncker from the EU. We're starting to hear more and more from companies, GM among them, about how this is playing through their earnings. What do you make of it? Well, I think that uh, today was a big day. It could be the actual beginning of the end of this escalation as we move forward in these trade talks. How so? Well, I think that uh, I think that the administration definitely needed to have a pause, a moment of uh, where showing that they can actually sit down and start working on some positive negotiations versus uh, raising the bar on the rhetoric. And so does the market start to get a little more comfortable here? How how are you seeing it sort of play through both the, the indices but also individual sectors? So what we're looking at, there's a lot of actually positive movements in the market. I mean, we can go back and look at the Shanghai going back from June – it's kind of telling. It's up about two to three percent, um, and I'm lo- I'm looking at emerging markets in the dollar right here. So, emerging market debt seems we believe it's put a bottom in back in June, and we believe emerging market equities have put a bottom in for the year back in uh, beginning of July, end of June area, and those are those are telling us something. Uh, I think the dollar is going to start stabilizing here. And that all these equity markets are, are are looking better, which is an indication that probably the worst of the rhetoric is is hopefully behind us. I got to tell you, Brett, you seem and sound more optimistic uh, about this than a lot of uh, other folks we're we're hearing from, and certainly more optimistic than a, than a lot of CEOs seem to be uh, talking on the on their conference calls. You know, I'm optimistic. I, I understand that. I think the current administration has a has a political, uh, uh, let's just say that their time to deal with this trade war is, is definitely being clocked. And the time frame for it to work out is uh, their calculus. They, 
they're, they're going to be pressured to, to move forward on a lot of these topics because there's too many wolves and lions out there who would, who would love to take Trump out if, 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 if there's any kinks in, the, in this economy. So, Wolves and lions from a political perspective, you mean? Yes, absolutely. Huh. Okay. So you think there's going to be some kind of resolution that it's just kind of the art of the deal at work and that ultimately what will end up with multilateral agreements or, or, or stronger bilateral agreements? I think I think you could see maybe uh, something with the EU and maybe conversation about Japan come into mix there. Uh, I'm not sh- quite sure how that would play out, but I think the talks do move forward. Brett, the thing is, though, if I'm a CEO of a publicly held company, you know, there's a point where some of this talk, as we saw this week, whether it's General Motors or Whirlpool or or, or Harley Davidson, where where companies are starting to take actions because they're listening to this trade rhetoric and, in some cases, actual tariffs, and they are taking actions. And there's a certain amount of uncertainty out there in the environment as the message from Washington kind of seems to change. Uh, As a CEO, that makes it tougher for me to make a decision. We talked about this in Bloomberg Business Week, about the lasting implications of some of these policies out of Washington. You don't see them as being any kind of lasting uh, lasting impact? Um, Well, absolutely. If If this trade escalation continues, trade war escalation continues, there's definitely some lasting impacts. I mean, the risk premium that CEOs are going to be having to pay on their input costs um, is already is already priced in. I mean, they're already having to make serious adjustments. If you listen on any of the earnings calls, and, and you know that. But I think that this could all reverse just as fast. And I think that the administration knows that. I mean, you just had a bipartisan um, Senate uh, bill come out talking about how they, you know, don't want the the uh, auto tariffs coming out. I mean, mm-hmm. so his political clout will diminish quickly as soon as there's any kinks in the armor on this economy. Yeah. Right now, right now there hasn't been. Right. Well, we... and, but but they know that it could very s- simply, and you, you let inflation start filtering through from this from all these tariffs. What position does that put the Federal Reserve in? Yeah. Yeah, interesting. Well, little dose of Southern optimism there from Brett Ewing. Uh, he joins us from Tallahassee, Florida, on the phone. Uh, he, of course, is the chief market strategist for First Franklin Financial Services. Brett, thanks so much. Absolutely. Thank you for having us. All right, everybody. You're listening to Bloomberg Markets. Carol Master along with Jason, Jason Kelly. I'm just looking at some of the most read stories on the Bloomberg, and they uh, quite a variety here, Jason. We've got, of course, our number one red story for the day it has to do with uh, Sergio Marchioni of uh, Fiat Chrysler, of course. Um, very sad. And for those we know uh, here at Bloomberg who spent a lot of time talking to him, uh, he was quite an individual and uh, really credited with turning that uh, auto company uh, around. Yeah, and I feel like, Carol, we live in a time where there are fewer and fewer of these larger-than-life CEOs. Yes. And he really was one and, and someone who really uh, you know, put the company on his back and, you know, carried it through one of the most turbulent times, not just in the company's history, but in the industry's history, and really made made a mark yeah. on the automotive uh, business that, that is, yeah. is rare. He also had quite a sense of humor. Listen to the, what he had to say to our Pim Fox uh, at one point. I want to know, where do you get your sweaters? One place. I won't tell you where. <laughs> does, anybody, does anybody at Fiat get to wear a sweater other than you or at Chrysler? They can. They're just back copies. <laughs> <laughs> 
All I can say is that's classic Pim Fox and that's classic Sergio. Um, having watched a couple of press conferences, some exchanges with our own Matt Miller, uh, rather entertaining. Jason. Absolutely. And our beat reporter literally followed him yeah. all over the globe. And Sergio was such a de- gentleman in dealing with us all the time. That's no way to go. Right, everybody, we know what you did last night. Fearful words, especially if you're a younger millennial and that's your mom or dad saying them. This is one of our most read stories on the Bloomberg today. Emma Kennery wrote it. She's financial reporter at Bloomberg News. She's in our Bloomberg 113S studio. It's a really great story. I saw it this Thank morning you. and I was like, ah, we got to talk about this. This is why we have to have young people among <laughs> us, Carol, is because they bring us these sorts of uh, stories. Uh, Speak for yourself. I know, all right. <laughs> Younger than me. Sorry. Is your mom stalking your Venmo? <laughs> no. no. Yeah, right. So tell me what's going on. Yeah, and so I think that Venmo stalking is something like the term that people what's use. What's Venmo for people who aren't Venmo is a payment app, and it's owned by PayPal, um, and it kind of blends together social media and payment processing. So when you pay like your friend for lunch or whatever, you have to have a caption, and it Typically, it goes on a public feed. Um, you can change it to make it private. It's really and, easy. Just yeah, the money around. Okay, so um, and so a lot of people, a lot of people who are like millennials, like my age, um, will use it as a way to. A lot of people see it kind of as the 2008 Facebook in many ways, um, where people put really um, are really candid about what they are doing. Well, explain. There's a Venmo feed. Yeah. I have to be honest. I don't have Venmo. Though I have a friend who's. <laughs> Not a millennial and cheese is Venmo. It's like a Twitter, but if you had money. So, <laughs> like, what, what, so what do like. you say? Like, I just bought a ham sandwich? Well, you would, if I was to pay you for the sandwich, I'd pay ham sandwich. And that's your Venmo feed. And that that becomes your Venmo feed. Yeah, exactly. And so it's a good way to figure out, like, what your ex-boyfriend's doing, who's he paying, like, who's living with who, because people, like, pay their utilities on Can you look at other people's Venmo feeds? If they're public, yeah. And they're public by default. So there's also Jason a whole Kelly feed is that's shaking all his head. I'm shaking his. I'm shaking my head in part because with the kids today, everything's public. They you know, know. can't make anything private. But you know, there is a certain amount of just. I, I mean, dare I say, like almost like social media exhibition exhibitionism here well, uh, that happens, right? Yeah, I think that that's especially what's interesting, and that's why I kind of wanted to look at the generational difference in it, because for many people, and especially many people of the older generations, money is a very private topic. Like right. people don't really like talking about their personal finances. People don't talk about their paycheck, whatever. Um, and so then to have this app, which is literally a social media where you're saying like everything you're buying is yeah. interesting. Right. I mean, I will say, like, you know, we use it to pay our babysitter. I mean, yeah. it is it is incredibly useful. useful. Yeah. And one of the interesting things, and I wonder if you looked into this, Emma, is this notion that it has been sort of taken up much more. Quickly. You know, PayPal obviously was very popular, but all, almost always felt just a little bit cumbersome. Venmo has figured out how to be a little bit easier to use. Yeah, it's easy. Um, and that's why especially a lot of younger people like it, because it's just – yeah, you type it in, you pay the person, you're done. I love this story because it talks about somebody who said um, they've been able to predict the blossoming of relationships, yes. ex- exes reuniting, and couples break up simply by tracking their Venmo feeds. Yes. So I was oh talking to Avery, who seems to do a lot of Venmo stalking. So she was a great source. <laughs> um, and she was talking about how she going – so this couple that she knew kind of – like they sensed some tension and they were still liking each other's like Instagram posts and tweets and whatever. Um, but they stopped like mess- they stopped doing payments on Venmo. And so she was like, oh, they're probably like not hanging out as much. And then a few weeks later, they'd broken up. 
Venmo, though, becoming a bigger wow. player, too, right? You talk about what processing more than $40 billion of payments yeah. in the last 12 months, growing 50% in the first quarter. Yeah. Holy schmoly. And a leading indicator for millennial yeah. love, apparently. <laughs> yes. <laughs> swipe right, swipe left kind of thing. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> pay, for the, pay for the dinner? Split the dinner? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Movie tickets, whatever. <laughs> um, great stuff. Emma, thank you. Thank you so much. Fun to check in with you. Emma Kennery, finance reporter at uh, Bloomberg News. And if you spoke at all, you just said hi to Big John. Big John. All right, Big John, John Ehrlichman, back with us. He's anchor of BNN Bloomberg's The Open, correspondent for CTV National News, back with us from Toronto. John, go figure, a new survey out showing that Toronto beating, what, both the Bay Area and New York and a few other places when it comes to tech jobs. I'm thinking, this might just add to our trade tensions. I'm just <laughs> We don't want any more tension. Kim. No. My goodness, there's plenty of that already. But, I, you know, I think that's, that's a great way to get into this because as, as much as we want to talk about tariffs on steel and aluminum and, and every other product that you could think of, uh, a lot of that conversation on trade tensions is centered around old economy, whereas the new economy and technology is hard to slow down, right? We'll get Facebook results later today. We'll get Amazon results this week. We saw what happened with Google and Microsoft. Those companies continue to chug along. And any pocket of North America where there's some good tech ideas, it's finding a lot of startup money. And so Toronto has benefited from that. You're right. Uh, CBRE, which tracks commercial real estate, uh, concluded that almost 30,000 tech jobs were created in Toronto in 2017. That was more new jobs in Seattle, New York, and Washington, the Bay Area. Now, there's a couple of reasons for that. One wait, of them, wait, 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 wait. But a lot yeah. more than all of those guys combined, right? Uh, yeah, if you add it up, Seattle, yep, definitely. Yeah, Seattle was about 8,000 or so. New York is 8,000, so that's yeah. 16. Washington's another four. That Yeah, you're not even there yet. And I think, you know, part of it is coming off a low base. Uh, for the last few years, Toronto's been getting a lot of startup money. I mean, quite frankly, across Canada, um, there's now billions and billions of dollars worth of funding that's available for AI startups and a whole range of different areas of technology. It just didn't happen in the past. So um, the more unicorns that um, emerge north of the border, Shopify is probably the the primary one. Uh, investors get excited about it, so they're willing to put more money to work. Plus, there is there is the difference in income. I mean, the, the reality is that you're still making a lot more in an, in a tech job in the Bay Area, in New York City, uh, or in a Seattle than you are in Toronto. But that appeals. To, to some people who want to grow a business. So, John, I want to take you back to something you mentioned in passing there, which is more money coming to these startups. Is that money that is coming from inside Canada? Is this another uh, indication of how robust the, the funding sector is, whether it's some of the pensions who are doing direct investing? Is this venture capital that's coming from the United States and elsewhere? Where, where's all this money flowing in coming from? Yeah, it's a great question, Jason. It, it's both. I mean, if if you didn't have multiple sources of, of, of new investment, you wouldn't be able to get into that, that billion-dollar range. I would say, and, and you know this very you know, well from, from all that venture capital we've seen from Silicon Valley, they're pretty smart, and they're always looking for new ideas, and they're highly competitive. So, yeah. so they've come into this market in a big way. Now, I will say a lot of people here say Canada still has a lot to prove. Uh, for example, you've got all these great ideas around artificial intelligence, but no one has built the AI business yet. Do you know what I mean? Like yeah. AI is really cool and it fits into other businesses, but there's no one company in Canada that owns it. There's a startup in Montreal called Element AI, and they've received 
boatloads of money from around the world, but they're still not even quite sure what they want to be. So this is that time for this new market Canada getting, you know, fancy and new and, and, and getting lots of money. It I'm, has to prove itself like Shopify. I'm just going to say, John Ehrlichman, Canada better hurry up when it comes to AI because the Chinese <laughs> are very aggressive when it oh, comes to yeah. artificial intelligence. And there's been a real battle to hire AI engineers and those folks who, you know, can work within that field uh, between, you know, they're all kind of competing for workers, you know, and taking them from the United States. And I don't know, but they better well, I, thought, I, I agree. And I, I thought one story that was kind of missed when we talked about the possibility that the U.S. would slow down Chinese investment in the U.S. Yeah. is how much money Tencent, Baidu, Alibaba yeah. have. Yeah. They, they have all invested in all those hot U.S. startups from Uber and Lyft. Uh, all of them are getting a lot of money from these big Chinese technology players. So that was a really big wild card when all of a sudden the Trump administration was talking about cooling that down because they are heavily invested, you're right, in the U.S. market and, and in some of the Canadian startups as well. Well, and John, I have to think that some of the excitement manifests itself uh, there in the equivalent of Wall Street's Bay Street, right? In, in Toronto, where all the bankers... Uh, hang out, they must be salivating in this idea of unicorns that eventually are going to go public or get bought, you know, some M&A coming down the line. Yeah, no, it's absolutely people get excited about it. I mean, quite frankly, there's a lot of banks and a lot of energy companies that dominate the Canadian marketplace. That's not that new. It's not that sexy. It's not original. It's one of the reasons why bankers have gotten really excited about the cannabis business. I mean, you've got these multi-billion dollar valuations for these companies that have yet to prove themselves, and it's keeping the bankers busy. But when you have more companies in AI, um, in self-driving cars, you know, BlackBerry is, is the poster child for once being a Canadian unicorn. Of course, they're not trying to sell phones anymore. They're really trying to reposition themselves as a hot player for software in vehicles. So as long as people are interested in autonomous driving, uh, there's probably going to be some money coming up here to Canada. And a lot of it has to do with schooling, too. It's got to be close to right. top talent. You know, in you know, in the Bay Area, they've got Stanford. In the Toronto area, they've got a school like the University of Waterloo. Cool stuff. John Ehrlichman, thank you so much. Anchor at BNN Bloomberg's The Open. Correspondent for CTV National News joining us on the phone uh, from Toronto. This uh, report, too, uh, Jason, from CBRE Canada says, Toronto among the best values for tech firms, also the U.S. Midwest. Good yeah, value. Amazing. Let's, as we mentioned, 14 minutes away from that closing bell. We are awaiting some comments from uh, Washington and the White House. In the meantime, let's talk markets. David Dietz is founder, president, chief investment strategist at Point View Wealth Management, $340 million in assets under management. David, back with us from Summit, New Jersey. David, I am watching the equity markets. We just took a leg higher here uh, on expectations. Uh, it's coincidence, maybe, but maybe to see what comes out of Washington and whether or not uh, the EU and the U.S. can figure out uh, some kind of reasonable terms, favorable terms for both sides when it comes to trade. What do you make of the current market trade? Well, we certainly don't know what's come out of uh, Mr. Trump's meeting uh, with Mr. Junkser today, but there are some signs that may be some good news, some sort of settlement. Um, and, you know, really, that's been one of the key headwinds holding back this market, because when you look at earnings, which are really the mother's milk of stock prices, you, you couldn't be happier with, you know, double-digit increases earnings, and that's matched also by very sharp increases in, in revenues. Um, and for the most part, 
pretty stellar outlooks going forward. So, you know, um, that coupled with a fairly low interest rate environment makes people think, gee, why not jump into equities? But as, you, as we've been talking here uh, in these last couple of weeks, it's being held back by concerns over increased trade tensions. You know, 70% of the revenues of the Dow Jones Industrial Average come in from overseas. And to the extent that this global, tra- global trade starts to stagnate, that is not a positive. Uh, I do want to break in here, David, sorry, to just to give folks a headline that is breaking across the Bloomberg uh, right now. Citing Dow Jones, Trump is said to secure EU concessions to avoid a trade war. Europeans agreeing to work on more U.S. LNG exports. Europeans agree on lowering industrial tariffs, agreeing to align regulator standards on medical products, and the EU agreeing to import more U.S. soybeans. So some specifics starting to come out. We're obviously expecting to hear more uh, from the president shortly, but just a little bit uh, more context. So, David, let, let me ask you, you know, given some of this backdrop, that we're seeing, you know, you mentioned earnings being the the mother's milk. I love that mm-hmm. that phrasing. And you know, dig into the numbers a little bit for us. You know, are there themes that are emerging for you when you listen to the conference calls, setting aside what people are saying about tariffs and trade? Well, certainly you can break it down by sectors. And the number one uh, sector in terms of earnings growth uh, is energy. Of course, starting from a very low base, but energy prices have really been in a stealth bull market here, um, starting from about $26 per barrel in February 2016, now over 70 And, of course, um, those have been spurred on by geopolitical concerns. You've got the, uh, the sanctions on Iran, Venezuela grinding to a halt, supply disruption in Libya, and, and uh, although certainly the United States has come a long way with this fracking to increase uh, fossil fuels, there's bottlenecks in terms of distribution. So that's, that's one theme coming out here that these companies are doing better with the higher fossil fuel prices. Of course, we've got another theme is, you know, the FANG stocks in tech, where we're really in a secular boom here as everything kind of shifts online. You know, having said that, of course, they're starting to face some regulatory headwinds. Europe has led the charge, concerned about privacy, concerned about anti-competition. We did hear a blowout story from Google, which just seemed to, you know, um, go right past the fact that the Europeans have levied a $5 billion fine. All eyes now are turned on Facebook, which is the other great online advertising story. There we want to hear whether they've had any change to the business model, notwithstanding all the concerns on privacy, which we saw down in Washington. And is it a story where there's a shifting from Facebook to Google, or is that whole online advertising growing together in unison, and they're both benefiting equally? That's such a big question. I'm so glad you brought that up, because clearly, Pete, so many eyes, as you say, are on Facebook after the close, even despite uh, what we're expecting to hear from the president any minute. You know, one of the things I wanted to ask you about, David, as well as tax cuts. I mean, it feels like 100 years ago that that actually happened, given everything that's happened in the past few months, both in the markets and in politics. What's your sense of how those have played through? Is it still something that investors should be thinking about as they model earnings here? Well, 
you know, it's a good news and it's it's a mixed news. The good news is, let's face it, as Warren Buffett said, when your when your uh, partner says they'll take twenty one cents of every dollar instead of thirty five cents, that provides a tremendous tailwind, and that was the drop in the statutory corporate tax rate that was passed through uh, back in December, and of course a, d- a reduced rate um, for bringing uh, earnings had been stashed overseas back. So that's all a positive. So that's the great news. But the, the mixed news, of course, is we're not going to get that kind of a tail, new tailwind uh, each year. And so, you know, the, your problem here, which is why some strategists of myself are a little concerned, is you've got 23% year over year growth this year, but next year is projected just to be in single digits because, of course, the comparisons will be that much more difficult. I suppose if you really want something to worry about, you can say, gee, these tax cuts were a little late in the economic cycle. Usually the government puts in tax cuts when you're fighting a recession. Yeah. We're doing it in a big bull market. And will we have anything left in the chamber to, to use if we get into trouble again? Well, we will get into trouble. I mean, that's a market cycle. I mean, what what will tip us over into uh, a recession? As short as it may be, I think we had one guest who said it might be a little bit of a pothole, kind of quick, but over. But nonetheless, we'll get there. Yeah, I mean, certainly history tells us we'll get there. I suppose the one thing on people's mind is a potential inversion in the yield curve, which basically means the two-year Treasury rate gets higher than the 10-year. That's typically linked with the recession following. Will we get there? We don't know for sure. And of course, now there's good reasons to believe that may not be as informative because overseas, you've got the 10-year sovereign rates close to zero, which may be holding down our tenure unnaturally. I want to go back to trade, right? We are expecting uh, some comments from President Trump uh, from the White House and in regards to his meeting with uh, European uh, Union President uh, Jean-Claude Juncker. Uh, And what's interesting is I'm curious, David, what you think, whatever – we're assuming some kind of agreement, optimism, the stuff that's already been leaking out about uh, some concessions from the European Union in regards to trade with the United States. Does this send – a message to China. Well, certainly it sends a message to China, and according to Mr. Trump, that's one of the big points of it. And the message he would tell you is that we have to have a fair trading platform with China. And that not only includes reduced tariffs on, for example, exports from here of U.S. autos, but also um, more access for American companies to their economy and better intellectual property protection once they get there. Mm -hmm. Um, How do you measure that? Uh, Will it be achievable? I I, I suppose the optimistic way of looking at it is that these things have happened very suddenly, and as we're seeing perhaps this afternoon, they can be resolved very suddenly. And so the optimistic thing is perhaps by fall, that would be a coincidental time, some of these things could get resolved. And obviously, Europe is laying out a model for perhaps China to follow. Because the fact of the matter is these overseas countries are hurt much more than the United States are is with tariffs because they export more to us than we do to them. I just have to, I bring it up because somebody's tweeting just, you know, I like to monitor what's going on when we're expecting some kind of news. Imagine the rally when China caves in in our trade demands. Just speculation. I don't want to get ahead of ourselves, but, you know, investors will certainly, you know, read stuff. Well, and investors certainly are reacting right now. I mean, as you mentioned earlier, Carol, the stocks are rallying here in Mm -hmm. the U.S., uh, up about seven-tenths of one percent on the Dow, roughly the same for the S&P. The Nasdaq, which had been up already, 
uh, about 1%, uh, given some of the enthusiasm that David mentioned, uh, still coming off of Google in anticipation of Facebook. But you know, And, and the, that leg up continuing, like about 3.30. So just as this news started to yes. percolate and, and come out, you know, we did see uh, investors push uh, those equity averages higher. Absolutely. And we'll see you know, how the market uh, continues to react. And, and yeah, a lot of enthusiasm here, uh, David, as, as we go along. And, and it's a really good point you make about the speed of the resolution here, because this was a meeting today that many people were dreading, given all the rhetoric. And yet the meeting happens this morning. And here we are potentially with a press conference announcing an agreement uh, moments away. Yeah, exactly. I would just caution investors. Remember, one of the the hallmarks of this bull market this year is that there hasn't been been severe sell-offs based on the tariff concerns. If there's been any sell-offs, it's more about interest rate concerns. So given that mm. stocks didn't have a major pullback, heck, the NASDAQ just recently hit all-time highs. I wouldn't expect a huge rally, no matter yeah. how good the news is this afternoon. Well, let's talk about interest rates for a second, because you know, you've now had some time to get to know, at least on the front end, a little bit of what the Jay Powell Fed is going to be like. You know, we parsed as we always do all the words that he said last week as he was testifying on Capitol Hill. What do you make of the Fed so far? Does it change your view? What you've heard recently change your view of what the rest of the year holds in terms of uh, interest rate increases? underscored our uh, message to investors coming into this year that 2018 would not be a 2017 because right now, to the extent we benefited from QE, QT, quantitative quantitative tightening is starting to kick in. Um, We're going to have three interest rate hikes. We may have a fourth one in December. There's no matter what Wall Street brokers houses tell you, there's no way you can really spin higher interest rates as a positive, as we know it reduces the present value of everything. But to the extent that these rate hikes are accompanied by very strong economic metrics, very strong earnings, certainly you can make a case that it's, it's okay. But it's something investors do have to watch. But, David, early in the in, in a rate tightening cycle by the U.S. Central Bank, from what I understand, there's a lag certainly in the equity markets in terms of you, you continue to see momentum because investors see it as, OK, the economy is getting you know better back to normal. Well, so that is the tricky thing for investors, because, you know, monetary policy does act with a lag. So they're um, executing rate hikes now, and they're not going to see the the full bite, the full effect for 6 to 12 to 18 months down the road. So they don't want to push it too far. And the real cautionary tale is, although the United States is doing well economically, we're starting to see slowdowns in Europe and Mm -hmm. Japan. Their rates are still tethered towards zero. And so what's happening, of course, is we could be importing deflation from them as our rates continue to go up, money continues to flow here. And what's that do? It raises the value of the U.S. dollar, which puts the kibosh on U.S. exports of goods and services. That's not positive for earnings or the economy. We do have some headlines crossing right now from the EU spokesman saying the Trump-Juncker meeting was positive and that it has just finished. So we'll obviously and hopefully be hearing more from those two gentlemen coming up, Carol. Yeah, we'll break down those details when we head to Washington. David Deese, thank you. Founder, President, Chief Investment Strategist at Point View Wealth Management. $340 million in assets under management. David, back with us uh, from or joining us today from Summit, New Jersey. Thanks for listening to Coast to Coast. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to the radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. 